0: Hi there, it's Sue Grant-Marshall, Reading Matters Radio today, 1485 AM, and going out also on DSTV channel 869. And on the line from Cape Town, I have Claudine Shields, and it's spelt like shield, but leave the D off and put an S, S-H-I-E-L-S, and that's because Claudine's um, deceased Husband, how else can I say it? Yes, um, it was Irish. Uh, Claudine, hello. How are you?
1: Hi, Sue. Good morning. Nice to
0: nice to be on your show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, good, Claudine. Um, so you, I found your book, which is it's got an extraordinary title, and when I first yes. saw it. I thought, what on earth can this be about? I was intrigued by the picture, the cover picture, because it's two little girls, and they're standing. You can just see faintly in the background a very old-fashioned car, and then the title is Walking Through Front Doors, and the subtitle Seeking Justice for a Stolen Childhood, which is actually putting it very mildly. Your childhood was... (laughs) One of abuse yeah. and horror, and um, but I quite understand why it has that title. And walking through front doors, we will talk about that as we go through um, the story, because it's it's a very it's an intriguing title for yeah, yeah. for a, for an intriguing and and horrific book. That I must say right up front, Claudine. You loved reading books all your life. That has been your passion. And when you were a little girl and all this horror going on around you, reading was in fact, in a way, your salvation. Am I right? It was actually an
1: escape uh, because I realized that you can go many places without actually leaving, leaving your home or wherever you are with your book and uh, it really fed my imagination and in those days of of horror and abuse i really needed a, a strong imagination because i needed to keep my eye and my imagination on what was normal i needed to imagine a life beyond what i was experiencing so imagination was incredibly important to me and whatever said that became vital but of course um As you'll find out in the book, uh, reading was taken away from me. Yes,
0: as part of the bigger picture of abuse. Absolutely. And you know, I'm going to just uh, talk about that now because this is obviously a book show. And I grew up in the Kalahari in Botswana, uh, reading books. That was we lived in very isolated um, communities, and reading books was my sheer sheer delight. And And a form of escapism, as you say, and um, you're sorry to use a cliche, but she certainly was your wicked stepmother in her many efforts to punish you, control you and your sister, Lisa, who was about four, five years younger than you, as I recall, um, said you may no longer read Um, and I just, I can't think of anything more inwardly cruel than that, than, than taking away your joy, your pleasure, your escape.
1: Yeah, we, it was, um, I look back and I realize that, uh, you know, the there was such an incredible creativity involved in thinking up these rules and regulations under which we had to live. Um, I don't really understand the mind that can think of these things, but um we were I was still allowed to read, but it was it was only to be half an hour before bedtime. Yes. I was not allowed to to be in my bedroom during the day reading my my books, my beloved book collection, or um if I took a book out of the library it had to be i could only read for half an hour before our lights went off, and the lights went through uh, the
0: yes. Yes, 7.30 I, for
1: when. And um, we were forced to go to bed early, yeah. Yes. And so I, on a rainy day, I couldn't be, you know, lolling on my bed, lost in a book. No. So I learned to read walking to the station. I learned to read, um, you know, walking <laughs> walking to the shop. Yes. Um, I learned to read sneakily. And, yeah. you know, who wants, who wants that in your life? It, yes. It's
0: bizarre. Yes. And, um, you know,
1: at best. Yes. Um, horrifically abusive at worst.
0: Yes, and now, you know, I think if I, which of course, you know, I'm not a publisher, had a subtitle for your book, it would have been The Gun, because over your young lives hung the spectre of The Gun and your dad. Putting the two together, even though The Gun Mm. was not flourished often or used or whatever it was always always there and that is what in a way dictated your behavior your coping with abuse so let's go back to the to the very beginning because you were born you and your sister Lisa into a very happy family and then you know that's uh, in a it's it's in a way how the book starts in yeah in a way mm. um explain your mother said to you let's go and see the lights at Musenberg. you were living in Plumstead. and so yes. off you sit in the car you and your sister and i think it was your grandma yes that's
1: right
0: you tell the yes, story my
1: maternal grandmother
0: yes what happened
1: well it was it was, it was extraordinary because um, looking back, you know, things become very clear with hindsight. And um, it's remarkable to me how something so mundane as, you know, let's go and look at the Christmas lights in Nisenberg. You know, we used to get very excited about Christmas lights. And they were still hanging in January. It was early January. And my dad and all the male members of our family had gone to a bachelor party because my uncle was about to get married. And we set off in my father's new car, which my mom didn't really know how to drive. And for some bizarre reasons, for some reason, I, I still do not know to this day why this brand new car stalled on the railway line. And, um, you know, without giving too much of the book away, yes. a train came. We, My granny managed to get my sister and I out of the car, my mother
0: not she froze in the front seat and the train hit the car and took a clean in half. Um, my mother remarkably uh, didn't hardly had a... I've lost you, Claudine. Uh, okay, okay, Claudine, me? you said no. it was remarkable that your mother, the car was cut in half by the train and you said it was remarkable that your mother emerged with very little physical damage. Yes, because it was
1: um, it was a, a Renault in those days. The engine was at the back. And so the front of the car was light. So the train just sliced the front of the car away. And uh, my mom was just left with really a little bruise on her forehead. But um, unfortunately, there was a lot of trauma, um, post-traumatic stress that resulted from that. And then one thing led to another. And that, um, yeah, over six months later, the breakup of our family and um my dad marrying my stepmom and connecting us with with that huge step family. Um, and from there on, you know, things really went pear shaped. Um yeah, and so the happy family I grew up in was absolutely obliterated and we lost contact with our um blood family. We were moved away to to Sikafle, far away from, you know, where we'd grown up and where we where we had friends and family and we were isolated and yes. Yeah,
0: and so that, that's how the, the ugly, nightmarish year started. Yes, because <clears throat> um, to concentrate on your dad um, to begin with, um, he was, he, you, your mother, your biological mother, um, with whom you were later reunited, much later, um, she went, suffered from um, PTSD, which we recognise today. But we're talking about, what are we talking about, the 50s, 60s?
1: 1967 well, yes i call it the wrecking ball year for our family yes because it was after that that she you know in those days you didn't really talk about things that uh you know painful things traumatic things uh you didn't talk about what went on in the home i i call it the silence of the 70s um because you know in that era yes. we, you, you buried things you kept them quiet and, and you know i can remember um you know, there was no there was no counselling for us after this horrible, traumatic train accident. You know, you just got on with things. Yes, um, and that's that's the way it the way it happened in 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 those years.
0: It was, it was, and like
1: today. Yeah.
0: Yes, yes. and um, so <clears throat> for your mother, it was she one day this is a pivotal uh, scene to my mind certainly in the book um your mother is in uh, her and your dad's bedroom and um you wander down there and you see her reaching into a cupboard she takes out a box in the box is a gun and then she gotcha. puts it back in the box and she hides it away what was the effect of seeing your mother holding your father's gun what was the effect on you
1: well, um, I was very shocked. I think I had a vague idea that that my father had a gun um in those days. It was presented to us you know um uh, because of the you know what was happening in our country at the time um was apartheid and uh, the separation of 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 the races and we were taught at my city in my home um but there was a subtle thing you know that we need. Guns to protect us as white people. And that's what I picked up. Um, not just in our home, but you know, uh, family and neighbors. You know, one day maybe things will change in this country and we'll need to protect ourselves. So it was presented to me as normal that there was a gun somewhere in the cupboard. Yes. Um, and to see my mother actually taking it down, uh, I, I kind of spied on her. She didn't know I was standing there. Um, my dad had rushed away. There'd been an argument. Yes. And it suddenly changed things for me. It made me realize that, you know, there's <laughs> there are these things that adults do that are actually extremely frightening. And I'm not really sure why my mom has taken my dad's gun out of the cupboard. But what I realized was that, um, you know, it was at the time that she was withdrawing from our family yes. and going in another direction with somebody else. And she obviously... Was frightened that my father was going to use that gun, and of course that opened up a whole, oh, some awful possibilities in my young mind and my young imagination. You know, yes. I, I, I didn't know why she would need to hide the gun, but she clearly did. Yes. And so you, you, a child in an adult world. Yes. Um, and I became terrified of of that gun and and what it could do.
0: Yes, and you were terrified, not <clears throat> just for it being turned, let's say, on your mother. Um, but also on you and maybe your dad using it on himself. So all of this hung over you. Then, uh, you know, your mother couldn't handle the tension and um, stress in the house and her own PTSD. So she found another life for herself that your father um, adored her and so he did what so many um, men do after a divorce, a breakup. You know, they reach for someone else. He re- he he reached for another woman, and this was the. Yeah. Um, This is my terminology, not yours. The wicked stepmother. She came into your life. She was everything that your mother wasn't. She wasn't authentic. She had painted nails, hair done up to the skies, which is what, you know, we had teased our hair and all that kind of thing. Always had to wear the right clothes, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, That was in the beginning. And then gradually it took on a more sinister form, uh, Claudine, in that this control of herself and her image then was extended to you and Lisa, your little sister. And when you move to moved to Sikufle, you were one of the first houses out there um, and mm. it was very bleak bare, barren, wind blown, you, was, you, you were excited when you got there you took Lisa's hand and you you know rushed down what you thought would be to the seaside, it wasn't it was a lagoon um, <clears throat> there yep. were the water was filthy I imagine it had chemicals, maybe even feces in it um, so there, bang, yeah. went one gorgeous thing you'd hoped for. Then, back in the house, which, you know, is very um, isolated, um, the two of you yeah. were told you, you had two big dogs. They were guard dogs. They weren't pets. You had to get shovels and clear up their shit every single day. Yeah. You had to clean the yard. She moved to, um domestic workers into a windy house in what you felt were were not livable uh, conditions and you voiced claudine you voiced your dissent and then what happened as a consequence of you speaking up you know
1: um it was it was shocking because the whole there was an entire regime change i mean you know, when I speak about this excitement at moving to Sicouflay, we've been there watching the house going up and um you know, the 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 this beautiful what we saw as a lake and lots and, and, and we, we were so excited and I kind of buried the missing my mother um under that sort of excitement. And oh and my glamorous stepmother, you know, she in the beginning to two small girls, she looked wonderfully glamorous and Um, And she was kind. She was very sweet to us in the beginning and especially in front of other people. So it all looked wonderful. And then when we moved down to Sea Bay and realized that this wasn't the seaside playground, excuse me, we'd imagined, that kind of went along with the same dismay that we started feeling at how the whole atmosphere and the whole regime within our house started to change. And uh, her control it's like once we we got you know away from all our blood family once we we got down to this isolated place everything kind of turned a different shade um and it yeah it was horrifying to me that my look, my stepmother and her family came from um a very different type of family to my own blood mother. My blood mother comes from England, um, my stepmother is is Afrikaans, all her family were very well to do Afrikaans people, um, from, you know, wine farms and things like that. And they had a whole different way of dealing with people and I hadn't been raised that way. I mean, when I say people, I mean people of colour. Yes. Um, and the whole thing was just absolutely Horrifying to me and it was horrifying to me that my father went along with it. Yes, but the fact is You know as an adult I can now see it was basic control And when people are broken and vulnerable because of what's happened to them in in recent previous years You you sit in
0: ducks for manipulation and control. Yes um, uh, Claudine I want to chip I want to chip in there because what um, happened is that your father gradually um, began to change and almost to disintegrate. Your stepmother and the family loved these wild parties. Every weekend there was another wild party, doors flung open, anybody passing could walk in, I'm not saying they did but they could, the music was blaring, alcohol was flowing like water, your dad um, drank more and more and more um, became out of control when these drunken men leering, pawing at you said there's one incredible scene where one of these men says dance and you know you appeal to your father, dad I don't want to dance and he says dance and and they're all drunk right. and pawing at you. But then, and don't worry, Claudine, I'm not going to get into um, all of this. But the two of you, you and Lisa, share a bedroom. So you you went to bed, and then you had two of your stepmother's brothers um, started coming into your bedroom and sexually mm. abusing you, and you couldn't That's say right. anything. Uh, it was almost a self imposed um kind of restraint because of the gun because you were so worried at your distraught increasingly um, out of kilter, father, we won't even discuss, you know, the wicked stepmother, that you were frightened that the gun would come into play. And so you didn't tell your dad what was going on. And there were some days when you Mm. were going to school, you went to school in Weinberg, where you had to hitchhike Mm. a lift to school, the two of you, because they were so hung over from the weekend parties. Well, the parties would sometimes go on for days, and I mean, people would come and go, and
1: my father would disappear for days. I mean, we it was literally, I mean, the doors were literally flung open, um, and and people came and went, and, yes. it, and, and that included into our bedroom. There was no safe place for us. Nobody protected us. My father, it was as if he had just given up. And just sought oblivion rather than you know live with what was happening in front of him and with the memories of of what had been um so he became totally out of control and he wasn't there as a safe person for us to speak to and um you know we the gun was always there in the back of my mind i always felt that my father's pain and anger and things that had also happened in his own childhood, you know, I felt like he was only look he was just looking for an opportunity to discharge that weapon. And, you know, if he hears that two, <coughs> excuse me, if he hears that two men are doing things to his daughters, I, I always in my young imagination thought, well, you know, this is a perfect opportunity for him to unleash some of that rage. Yes. And I was terrified because in the 70s you got hanged for murder. Yes. And, um, you know, I thought we'd lose my father, and yeah. you know, uh, you people, you know, will understand that you're looking at the situation through the eyes of a minor, not an adult. So you often get people levelling these criticisms at us. Well, why didn't you tell an adult? But it's it's well known and well documented within this you know field of abuse and and, and the psychology that goes with it that you are you are frightened. You don't know how the adults are going to deal with us. Yes. you think um well you know it could there could be hell to pay there could be violence There could yes. be police involved mm. you could be taken away by social workers you in a child in an adult's world and you've been taught that you know you can trust adults and adults do the right thing and suddenly here they are not doing the right thing yes now yes. you are meant to go and tell on those adults and what's more uh, again, you know people have said, "Well, you should have told your father, but the thing is, here are two men that come to your house regularly. They stay over. your father is often blind drunk. Are you now? These men have already proven that they are prepared to break into your room, even though you barricade it, break into your room at night to get to you. they've already proven to you that they don't care about your well being now, if you go and tell on them." What are they going to do to you in the dark of night when everybody's passed out drunk? Yes. They still could come and abuse you and now with a hefty dose of retribution on top. Yes. They might smack you and hit you. They might they might do something even worse to you because you've told on them. Yes, So yes. that's why you keep quiet. And um it's 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 frightening to speak about you also have this terrible, terrible shame that you've terrified that somehow you have invited this because you can't believe that adults will actually do this wicked thing yes. so you start to to believe that you are, are a bad girl yes and in my case i didn't want any of my friends or uh neighbors there was only one friend i told that you can you know read about in the book yes but i was scared that my friends all my teachers at school will think well you know we better keep away keep our children away from that girl you know she knows yes. too much about adult stuff, yes, um, so you know as again, to wrap that portion up to summarize, you don't know you you're dealing with this through the eyes and mind of a child, yes. not an adult
0: yes, and I think that's so, such an important point because look at the women, grown up women who are gradually abused by their husbands till it, till their lives are endangered, and in fact they are. Often killed our femicide rates. Um it's Sue Grant Marshall, yeah. Reading Matters on Radio Today, 1485 AM. And I'm talking to Claudine Shields, S-H-I-E-L-S, about the book she has written. Beautifully written. It's simple but powerful. You don't exaggerate. You can just feel that you've read a lot of books, Claudine, because you write so well. Now the book is published by Thank Books. <laughs> the book is published by Bookstorm. And depending on where you buy it, it's on promotion for another ten days, two weeks. And it's on Kobo Books, K-O-B-O, and it's also on Amazon, where I think that promotion is still going on. It'll cost you about 102 rands there, and it's... In print, in the stores, 300 rands for for what this is, a paperback. And it's also on loot and take a lot. And what's interesting, and it might even be, exclusive books have this interesting offer at the moment. They're working with Uber Eats. So you can get food for the mind and food for the body in one go. So maybe it'll (laughs) end up on Uber Eats. And now, getting through this title... Walking through front doors, you and yes. Lisa were not ever allowed to walk through the front door of your home. That is what your stepmother de- decreed. Yes, that was one of the
1: the more bizarre and actually crippling rules that we had to had to live with. Um, yeah, it was announced to us one day that we were not we're no longer allowed to walk through the front door. Um, we mess up the carpet. So, you have to go around to the back door and wait. So, when they had their own children, my dad and my stepmom, and those children grew up and we'd be, you know, we would have gone somewhere and be returning, um, they would all walk through the front door. And my sister and I had to go and wait in the walks down the long backyard and knock at the back door and wait. And often they would forget us and we would have to knock for the back door to be unlocked and let us in. And I called my book that because I think out of all the rules that we had to live by, that was. That did the most damage to my sense of, of worth and self-esteem. And it took me a lot of years after that to to be able to actually walk through a front door of a building or a house without flinching and expecting trouble or that I was going to get dragged along by my ear. Um, so it was when I was able to comfortably walk through a front door again without even thinking about it that I knew that I had I got over that. And you how know, old were you? of healing had taken place.
0: Yes. And how and old were you at that, that? How old were you at that stage, Claudine? When I no longer. Yes. When you were uh, allowed to walk. Of, <laughs> yes.
1: Um, you know, it took some years. I would say into my, well, into my twenties. You know, before I even, and even maybe longer, before I actually stopped thinking about it. I mean, there have even been times recently when I've gone and visited and still remembered, you know, suddenly it would pop, a thought would pop into my head, my goodness, you know, you, you've come a long way. You can walk through a front door without um, expecting um, some sort of punishment. Yes. So. Yeah, it became a symbol of of my healing yes um,
0: yes and claudine because so that's we're, why you that is the title yes we we're, we're running out of time um what happened was you mm-hmm. eventually you left home and um you went to england etc you left your little sister lisa lisa behind yes. because yes. what else could you yes. do and then she had these sexual attacks, you know, abuse. She had to endure it on her own in that bedroom you had both shared. And, That's you, right. you, you know, just terrible for her now. Um, and then eventually one night, Now, well, I won't go into that. She liberated herself. Yes. Let's just leave it at that That's from right. this sexual abuse. Yes. Now, the two of you, in, I'm sure many have heard of the Frankel Case the Frankel eight in Ooh. which eight grown-up women now have took um, I can't remember his first name Frankel to court and it the hey, law Sydney Frankel Sydney Frankel that's right and the law allowed this uh, a case which had happened when they're now grown-up women like you are to be brought before yes, a court. Sorry, darling.
1: There were some men too, um, yes. males and females, yes. Yes, in that, in that's the right.
0: Race. Victims, yeah, not victims. Ooh, what? Yeah. Um, but now what happened with you and your sister was that you decided you were taking your case um, to justice in South Africa. Yes. Tell me what's happened about that. Yes. It's written up in the book. It's there. Um, but tell me... Yes. What happened? You went to court. I mean, the the prosecutor said, yes, we will take this. Yes, what, well, yes, well, we, we, kept, we kept an eye on the Frankl ak
1: not so much me, mostly my sister. Um, and she, she phoned me one day and said they're going to change the law. They're they, doing away with the statutes of limitations. Uh, there was a 20-year time limit for reporting sex offences. And um shortly afterwards it went to the constitutional court and they overturned that prescription period. Yes. Um we my sister always wanted to lay charges and she had she had tried um to contact uh the the abusers she um, she had some shocking responses and she said to me she's going to go ahead and lay charges she has to do it um do i want to join her and i said i would think about it and i thought about it for about 30 seconds and i said yes um, but <laughs> what we did was we started yes. we started by uh, giving our uh, abusers
0: time to apologize we wrote to them to fast forward what happened is um you ended up in the corridor of a court and one of the abusers was there and the sense that you and your sister had that this man, because the other one didn't um, come to court at that stage, that you were seeing justice done in front of your eyes. Yes. We laid
1: charges and that was very um, freeing and and it was very freeing because what we were doing was we were taking this and saying to to the law, to the legal system, the justice system, this is what happened to us, now you deal with it. Yes. And so it kind of relieved us of that burden of, um, you know, we didn't get an apology, we were told again we liars and we must stop telling our lies. And so that's why we decided to take it to the law, and and so it was up to the law. It went to the NPA, and they decided to prosecute. And for me, that's um, very liberating because I don't, I no longer need to carry the burden. I could go to the law and say this was done to us. You decide if this was a crime, and yes. you decide what you're going to do with it. Right. And so they decided. To prosecute and we are the oldest um, case in the country, and we're the first case after the removal of the statutes of limitations, the 20 year prescription period.
0: Yes, and now I don't know what effect um, the COVID 19 has had on this case. Um, are you able to say where you know what's happening now? When yes. Where, yes? yes things have things have
1: ground down a little bit um but people are still working behind the scenes what's happening is our prosecutors and the npa are trying to tighten up the legal framework within which these historic cases are tried because they've invited historic cases but some of the um, sexual offense laws need to be looked at again need to be maybe readjusted so that's what's happening behind the scenes so even if there wasn't COVID-19, there would still be a delay because they had decided to put some extra resources into actually um, yeah, examining some of the sexual offence laws that that could possibly be detrimental to, to victims in historical cases. So they, the way they explained it to me was the Frankel 8 case opened the door to historic cases. Now they need to build on that and actually make it possible to get convictions if, you know, victims are brave enough to come forward. Absolutely.
0: and so you, that's where we're at now. And that's the strong word, brave. You know, Claudine, I chatted to you earlier on, and I've got this picture of you in front of me. You know, you are elegant, you're smartly dressed, there's a sense of um, self-confidence about <laughs> you. When i reading this book, I mean, there were Thank times... You. Claudine, I put it down because I thought I can't believe what I'm reading in a sort of middle class family in, you know, the 60s and 70s South Africa where being white mm. was to be privileged, etc., etc. And what mm. you went through and now, again, what you're enduring, because it's that secondary victimization that you go through it all again. You have to... <clears throat> physically confront these two men, your stepmother's brothers who sexually abused yes. you in in a courtroom. And and why what's so powerful for me in this is here you and your sister are grown up, I don't know, in your fifties, sixties, whatever. Sixties, I'm sixties, yeah. Okay. My sister's in 50, you know, and and what you are enduring mm. and you think of children who have to go through this process and in fact it's interesting Claudina. Yeah. you've told me that at the end of this week 29th of may child protection week starts and in this time of yes, COVID 19 right. and abuse and femicide on the increase you know it is so terrifying and um, we've come to the end of the yes. interview i really do want Everyone to read this beautifully written book, Claudine. You write beautifully thank you. um walking through Thank you. Sue. <laughs> you don't have to thank me. Walking through front <laughs> doors seeking justice for a stolen childhood. It's published by Bookstorm and i've given you all the details about the different websites and where you can buy it and prices etc etc and if it sounds as if it's too horrific to read it isn't in fact uh claudine what you've done and i don't know whether this was intentional or not but you have not mm-hmm. um what can i say i can't say gilded the lily i mean you have not Um, the violence was enough that you did not have to um, use extreme adjectives to describe it, it's there when you have to get on your hands and knees and clean floors you're not allowed to use the vacuum cleaner you um, you know you can't sit at the table you have to sit on the floor you can't eat with the family because then you know you then have three extra siblings, your parents your father doesn't say anything about it And there, of course, in the background Mm -hmm. is this sexual abuse and the gun. So, Claudine, thank you for talking to me. Good luck with the case. I will definitely be looking out for it. What are they going to call um, the case, uh, Claudine? Uh, You know, when it gets to court, what, uh, you know, is it going to be the Shields case, the Brown case? What's it?
1: Uh, no, it will be it will be the state versus um, these two men. Um, their names uh, don't come out until they've had an opportunity to plead. Yes. So um, so yes, but uh, but you know there are there have been quite a few television interviews and some reports about it already. And um, if people want to read about it, I'm Claudine Shields. My sister is Lisa van der Merwe. Okay.
0: Um,
1: and so I think Google searches will bring up some. News reports and some items and some articles about, about what's happened up until now in our case. But it will eventually be the state versus. Um, which is it's quite a relief when i see it written as the state versus because it really takes the burden and the pressure off me yes. and, you know we've done our bit now the state must decide what happens with them yes
0: yes <laughs> so, yes
1: yeah so thank you very much thank you <laughs> thank you for this interview and for the opportunity to speak and at the start of um child protection week i really my hope and my prayer is that children yeah it's 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 terrifying to think of what's going on behind closed doors but there are helplines and yeah, I just, I just hope that children will be brave enough to find a safe adult and to, and to speak out because, um, yeah, we couldn't and it, it, it cost us a lot. Thanks,
0: Claudine Shields. Hi there. So, it's Sue Grant Marshall back again reading letters on radio today. I'm going to tell you now about another book written by Jacob Glamini. He worked on Business Day, where I worked for several years. He was the political editor. He wrote a column for it. And two of his books, Native Nostalgia and Ascari, Ascari won the 2015 Alan. Payton Award. Both books were bestsellers in South Africa and internationally. Now Jacob is working overseas. I think it's at Stanford um, University, and he has written and is in the process of finishing a book called *The Terrorist Album*. The subtitle: "Apartheid's Insurgents, Collaborators, and the Security Police." In fact, he works at Harvard University Press – at Harvard University, and it's Harvard University Press which is going to um – published this um, book, which sounds absolutely fascinating. Jacob writes that by using a small object to tell a big story about South Africa between 1960 and 1994, I intend to cut apartheid down to analytical, moral and political size, thereby challenging the myths that continue to surround popular understandings, or in this case, as Jacob says, I suppose, misunderstandings of apartheid. As the dream, writes Jacob, of a a democratic and egalitarian South Africa disappears into a 21st century hellhole of corruption and increasing economic inequality, and he wrote those words before COVID-19, then he continues. Apologists for apartheid have taken to saying something along these lines. Writes Jacob Lamini, the apartheid state might have been authoritarian and brutal, but at least it was efficient. Or, in quotes again, blacks were better off under apartheid. Or, the apartheid police were murderous bastards under apartheid. Or, the apartheid police were. But at least they knew what they were doing. Such revisionist claims are similar to the arguments made in defense of Italian fascist Benito Mussolini, under whose dictatorship the train supposedly ran on time. Jacob continues, We give the apartheid state too much credit, however, by assuming that it was efficient. It was not This did not make it less brutal, but efficient. It was not, he repeats. It could not always tell its friends from its enemies, its Indians from its whites. We only have to look at the album, feel its pages and listen to its voices to know that. So the terrorist album is a real book and he has a photograph of it that he took as the cover. Now, Jacob goes into the background here about the terrorist album and let me just quickly okay until the 1960s until the early 19 from the 1960s until the early 1990s the South African Security Police and counterinsurgency units collected over 7,000 photographs of apartheid's enemies I did not know that The political rogues gallery was known as the terrorist album and copies of it were distributed covertly to police stations throughout South Africa. Many who appeared in the album were targeted for surveillance by the security police. Sometimes the security police tried to turn them, in other words, you know, to make them tell um tell on the ANC etc sometimes the goal was elimination and somewhere else i read that sometimes the people in the photographs in this terrorist album who had nothing to do with the supposed terrorists were sometimes eliminated because of the security branch and the apartheid police being so inefficient so now how Jacob got onto this was he, was he met two members in, what are we now? less than two years ago of the South African Security Police to ask for their help in solving a number of archival puzzles. I was working with files, remnants of the Apartheid Security Archive and wanted to know, among other things, why the police gave their agents, informers, sources, etc. in the anti-apartheid movement codes. These were codes that began with the prefixes H-K- R-S and O-T-V. What exactly, asks Jacob, was the difference between agent HK619 and agent RS195, both of whom seemed to be spying on the same meetings of the exiled ANC and whose reports were synthesized into one report? Was it a difference in kind? If so, what and how? So Jacob's helpers were a lieutenant general and a brigadier, both long retired from the South African police. They were veterans of the security police, having joined in 1963 and 64 respectively. Each had, I can't believe this, each had participated in every major security police mission from the smashing of domestic opposition to apartheid in the 1960s to South Africa's paramilitary misadventure in the then Rhodesia in the late 60s and to the repression of extraparamentally political activities in the 70s, 80s and early 90s so why that one of the guys the brigadier was a fellow historian and an unofficial chronicler of the apartheid police for some four years at the point that jacob met him a shared interest in the history of policing in politics had brought them together why i asked the two men had the security police destroyed their records the brigadier's answer caught Jacob Glamini by surprise. The greatest form of terrorism, said the brigadier, was to destroy our documents. Coming from a man who dedicated his professional life to fighting terrorism, this was strong stuff indeed. So it goes on um, to discuss the brigadier's interest and the code names etc etc which jacob wanted to know what each one meant and the brigadier interestingly believed in the moral and political correctness of what the destroyed material had done in the past which was to document individuals and their actions and in its potential to act in the present in other words to unmask spies and blackmail former apartheid agents. You know, Jacob told me about that when I interviewed him after um, he'd just published Ascari. And there it is again. So Jacob says, his anger helped me realize that the album, album that frames the study is important not simply for what it was but also for what the police made it do and expected of it during the most violent period in the history of modern south africa then it goes on oh you know i've run out of time isn't that absolutely terrible but when it comes out i will obviously speak a lot more about it look out for it The terrorist album, Apartheid's Insurgents, Collaborators and the Security Police by Jacob Dlamini, published by Harvard University Press this year. It is not yet out in the bookstores, and when it is, I will definitely... Well, how can I say definitely it's COVID-19. Jacob's in America. I'm here, but I would love to interview him about it. I will catch you again next week on Reading Matters Radio Today, 1485 AM. Cheers.